I'm John Bailey, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Ross Gay, a poet and professor at Indiana University, the author of two volumes of poetry, Against Which and Bringing the Shovel Down, and according to his biography, a basketball coach, a painter, and an occasional demolition man. Ross Gay, thank you for being here today. It's good to be here, John. Thank you. At what point did it become clear to you that you were going to live a writer's life? I think I became interested, sort of like deeply interested in writing. I know I became deeply interested in writing in college. I was not at all, you know, a lot of people, they they talk about knowing that they were going to be a writer from the moment they ever heard a book or heard a story or anything like that. And that was not my experience at all. I wasn't like a big reader um, as a kid. Um, I think when I was a little kid, I read. But then I, and I read comic books. I read Power Man and Iron Fist comic books, um, like every one of them. Um, but besides that, you know, in high school, middle school, I didn't read at all. But when I got to college, um, I, in my second year, I wasn't doing well. I was a football player. I was on the brink of sort of, you know, failing out. I was on, I think I was on academic probation and all that. And I had a professor who, in a 20th century American literature class, who put me onto some writers that sort of changed my life. Yeah. And then I started writing in earnest. You were born in Youngstown, Ohio, mm-hmm. to an African-American father and a white mother, Mm -hmm. came of age in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s Mm -hmm. near Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Uh, What challenges did being biracial in that time and place present? I think my own particular circumstance, which was that I grew up in an apartment complex that, as I think back, was pretty neat and mixed up, like... All kinds of people lived in, in the apartment complex. It was kind of, it was a kind of a working class um, little pocket in in a mostly working class sort of um, neighborhood. But this was a particularly diverse section as I as I think about it. So that was itself very interesting. That said, it was also you know kind of within the area of like it basically butted up against a town called Levittown, which was historically a segregated uh, town. One of several Levitt towns yes. in the Northeast. Exactly, exactly. And um, so there are, you know, there were the sort of um, certain kind of racism that lingered in that area. So, you know, I experienced that sort of thing, um, as did, I think, most of my friends who were um, not white. That being said, like I said, in my apartment complex, it was sort of, there was a huge mixture of kids and um, we all played together, and it probably wasn't until I got a little bit older that I became more conscious of, of race, you know, in that kind of way. How did you go about uh, forging, forming, discovering a cultural identity that seemed cohesive for you? I think I'm probably still working on a notion of a cohesive uh, cultural identity. I think I had experiences in my life, some of which I can recount to you, some of which are probably blurry and gone from me that made me think about things like um, not only race, but things like masculinity, what it means to be a boy, um, what it means to be of a certain kind of socioeconomic 
situation, what it means to be an athlete, what it means to be an artist. There were pointed incidences, which, you know, I think it's sort of important that when I was like a, a, like a 10-year-old kid, the move bombings happened in Philadelphia. And I can recall that plain as day, my mom and dad, if I remember this correctly, my mom and dad watching the newscasts of basically the helicopter that the black mayor of Philadelphia ordered to drop a bomb on these black people. That, I think, is a kind of formative thing, while at the time I didn't think of it as a certain kind of formative thing. Um, And at the same time, I can think of a deeply formative experience being that I lived in a household with a mother and a father who were completely in love with each other, you know? And I lived in a neighborhood where all of these friends, these kids, you know, with names like Diaz and Cracciolo, you know, and and us, and um, were pals and sort of in some ways there was a kind of seamlessness between the kids in the neighborhood, as I recall it, in some ways. You wrote about an incident when you were about 13 in which a guy, presumably in the apartment Mm -hmm. complex, broke up a liaison, a fooling around, Mm -hmm. or just a hanging around Mm -hmm. uh, between you and and a white girl. Yeah, yeah, and that's the kind of thing that um, also forms you. You know, I was walking with my buddy's little sister. I was just, I was actually collecting for my paper route. And this uh, guy, he, you know, came out of the... um, his house and I was knocking on his door collecting and um, said, don't be walking around here with white girls in word. Um, And basically chased me down the block. I was a 13 year old kid, deeply innocent kid in ways at that time. I no sooner thought about who I was walking with besides that person being one of my best friends, Sisters, who was like a friend of mine, too. And she was just kind of joined me for a few minutes, and then she was probably going to go on her way and go play with her friends. And that this guy basically, you know, pursued me almost and had to be held back by another guy, a white guy, who kind of was, you know, restraining him and in a way apologizing. And you could tell felt sick to his stomach that this was happening in front of him. Um, The guy who was restraining him was also my paper customer and the parent of friends of mine white children and across the block there you know right across the block there were these a black family um so it was this complicated experience and of course the thing that was probably being taught to me in some way was that your household in which a black man loves a white woman is in some way to this man um a problem and the white woman my life at that time or the woman in my life at that time was a white woman. It was my mother. Um, and that love became certainly problematized. You mentioned seeing three shotguns on his living room wall. Yeah. You write quite a bit about uh, violence and aggression, not just um, that which you've witnessed or experienced externally, uh, but things that you have felt mm-hmm. from childhood through adulthood. There was a uh, a, a rather inscrutable or ambiguous incident on a bus mm-hmm. when you were about 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was um, feelings of revenge mm-hmm. stirred uh, by um, uh, learning a female friend of yours had been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, there was your reaction uh, to a drunk man's behavior in a bar at a very sensitive moment in your life. Mm-hmm. And all the same, 
a lot of this aggression seems to be tied up in these poems with tendrils of tenderness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is writing therapy for you? Hmm. You know, I have an odd, I have a knee jerk reaction that to say that it's not, but I want to think hard about that because maybe it is. The reason I write poems, the reason I write essays, the reason I write, period, is so that I can, through the process of writing something that I have questions about, come to know that thing better. So I'm writing in order to more fully understand the the mysteries of my life. Not to make the mysteries disappear, but to more fully understand them. That can be therapeutic. And I think it can be therapeutic because it can let me know more about who I am, about what I've done, about things I've seen. Um, about things that have been puzzling to me, you know, and that that can be that can be therapeutic. It can also be, you know, deeply painful um, and frightening. You uh, seem to have dealt uh, frequently in your poems with the passing of your father. Mm-hmm. How long has he been gone? It's like eight years, I think. I think it's about eight years. And it seems to have been a a progressive illness. You mm-hmm. watched him fail. Yeah, he died. Um, it was quick, actually. He he was totally vital, um, healthy until like December of a year, and then he was dead in May. So it was a very quick illness. He died of liver cancer. It presented, we thought, hoped it was a uh, upper respiratory infection, and then it um, was diagnosed by his brother, who is a um, an oncologist, my uncle, and. He, you know, kind of managed um, his care for a lot, but he he's the one who, you know, sort of let us know, oh, no, 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 this is something serious you got to take care of. In your um, poems, including How to Fall in Love with Your Father, mm-hmm. in your first book, Against Which, uh, you deal not just with his final illness and his passing, uh, but also with themes of masculinity. Mm-hmm. What has your father taught you in life and in death about being a man? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. That's a great question. My dad was complicated. He was not easy. He was like a lot of men. He was like, I think, like I can be often. And he was arrogant, um, could be a know-it-all. And um, he was, you know, pained by his life in ways that he wasn't, didn't talk about and all that said he was completely present for us he was very hard working he you know came to as many of my games as he could possibly make you know um he was that kind of guy he just I was just thinking about this this morning that I was talking to my buddy I asked him if he felt like his folks liked him my buddy and he said yeah I think they like me and I said, there were times that I wasn't very likable and I didn't really feel like my parents liked me. They liked stuff I was up to, but I wasn't that likable. And I was like a kid. I wasn't special. I was like a kid. At no point ever, you know, my dad and I barely spoke. We'd be in each other's presence. We barely spoke for years. At no point did I ever feel that he didn't love me, you know. At no point did I feel that I was unloved, um, uncared for, and misunderstood and all that stuff. But that's the thing that I think my dad taught me about. Um, the most important thing that I think he taught me about being a person, which was, you know, in some way I knew, I don't know what he did exactly, but I knew that he loved me. Yeah. What did you think you were going to do when you grew up? 
you know, I I didn't know what I was going to be. I um, but as a kid, I thought, you know, as a kid, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Like, no kidding. And it didn't feel like because of what I saw in my house, it didn't feel like the prospects were great at being happy. The prospects for happiness um, were great in terms of a work life. And, you know, it was sort of very touching that my old man, you know, we were getting along better later in his life, you know, probably a couple of years before he died. And I was hanging out one day. I was at their house and I, he had to go to work. And I said, ah, oh, man, blow it off, man. Let's go to the movies or something. And he said, man, you don't know how, how bad I wish I could. And that was the first real indication that he ever said that he didn't that he didn't like what he did. I knew he didn't like what he did, but that was the first time he ever let me know. I was probably like 28 years old, mm. you know, amazing. A lot of your poems are set in Philadelphia. They identify strongly with that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for six years or so, you've lived in Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. Um, has Bloomington begun to find its way into your work? Totally. There's so many... Um, in this third book that I just finished writing, there are so many um, Bloomington poems, you know, a lot of poems like where I end up at the Bloomington Community Orchard, which is this project that um, I've worked with. I've worked with for the last whatever, three years now. Gosh. So there are poems about, yeah, there are poems that take place on Fourth Street in Bloomington and there are poems that happen at the orchard and there, you know, Bloomington very much shows up in, in, the, in this new book and the new work. Can we listen to a recording of you at uh, an unlikely venue for poetry, The Bishop? Please. A a bar in Bloomington from September. Uh, You're reading uh, a poem called Spoon, dedicated to your late colleague, Don Belton. Who sits like this on the kitchen floor at two in the morning, turning over and over the small silent body in his hands? with his eyes closed, fingering the ornate tendrils of ivy cast delicately into the spoon that came home with me eight months ago from a potluck next door during which the birthday boy, so lush on smoke and drink and cake, made like a baby and slept on the floor with his thumb in his mouth until he stumbled through my garden to my house the next morning where I was frying up stovetop sweet potato biscuits. And making himself at home as was his way after sampling one of my bricks, told me I could add some baking powder to his. And could I put on some coffee and turn up the Nina Simone and rub maybe his feet, which I did, which I did, the baking powder, stirring it in. And I like to think, unlikely though it is, those were the finest biscuits Don ever ate. For there was organic coconut oil and syrup bought from a hollering man at the market who wears a rainbow cap and dances to disguise his sorrow. And it might be a ridiculous wish, but the sweet potatoes came from a colony just beyond my back door, smothering with their vines the grass and doing their part to make my yard look ragged and wild to untrained eyes. The kale and chard so rampant, some stalks unbeknownst drooped into the straw mulch. And the cherry tomatoes shone like ornaments on a drunken Christmas tree, and the blackberry vines gnawed through the rusty half-assed trellis. This in Indiana, where I'm really not from. Where, <laughs> where for years, Negroes weren't even allowed entry. 
and where the rest of graffiti might confirm the endurance of such sentiments. And when I worried about this to Don on a cool September evening, worried it might look, Don, in his kindness, abundant and floral, knowing my anxiety before I stated it, having been around, having gone antiquing in Martinsville a few weeks back, and been addressed most unkindly by a passing truck or two, trucks likely adorned with the stars and bars, asked, niggerish? Smiling and patting my back and said quickly, no, no, it looks beautiful. Then returned to some rumination on the garden boy of his dreams, whose shorts were very short and stomach taut and oily enough to see his reflection in. Don told me this as we walked arm in arm through our small neighborhood, which he asked me if he could do. Is this okay, he asked, knowing mostly how dense and sharp the dumb fear of mostly straight boys can be. Oh, Don. Walking arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, his hand almost patting my forearm, resting there, down the small alley next to the graveyard. Fall beginning to shudder into the leaves, and Don once dreamt he was in that graveyard, next to his house on 4th, where in real life we sang Diana Ross's Missing You while decorating his kitchen, where, I want, where once I asked to borrow a sign to make a Kincaid novel, at which Don made one sound by sucking his teeth that indicated I was both impossibly stupid and a little bit cute. <laughs> and in the dream, in the graveyard, where century-old oak trees look like giants trudging into a stiff wind, and some gravestones are old enough to be illegible and lean back as though consulting the sun. Don dreamt he was floating into the air, which, pleasant at first, became terrifying, he told me, beginning to cry, just a little, as the world beneath him grew smaller and smaller, his house becoming a toy, the tree's huge limbs like the arms now of small people calling him down. But he couldn't stop going higher, he said. And I have inserted myself two or three times into the dream, imagining a rope cinched to his waist by which Don might be tethered to this world, snatching it as it whips uncoiling through the grass at my feet and gripping it with all my strength until it almost hauls me up and takes the skin of my palms with it, twisting slowly into the sky, at which I become like the trees here on earth shouting, come back, come back running some blocks, looking into the sky, first down, fourth, but as the wind sends him this way and that, I too veer through backyards, hopping a fence or two, not wanting to take my eyes from him, not wanting to lose him, as he sails in and out of the low clouds, looking down with his sad eyes, just as he did when he said at breakfast, I'm a survivor, I survived, this 53-year-old gay black man, to which we did a little dance, listing the myriad bullets he dodged, swirling the biscuits in their oily syrup, Don occasionally poking his fork in the air for emphasis, laughing and sipping coffee and shaking our heads like we couldn't believe it. And having survived, Don wanted a child to love. And we made plans that I might make the baby with my sweetie, and he could be the real dad, reading and cooking and worrying while I played in the garden, and my sweetheart made the dough. <laughs> which maybe would have worked, though, though Don never once cleaned a dish. 
And when I told him to put his goddamn plate in the sink, he writhed in his seat and called me bitch before popping it in. <laughs> Returning to his Beyonce tune about survival. While he scooped and slurped the remaining batter with this spoon in my hands, into which I stare, seeing none of this. I swore when I got into this poem, I would convert this sorrow into some kind of honey with the little musics I can sometimes make with these scribbled artifacts of our desolation. I can't even make a metaphor of my reflection upside down and barely visible in the bowl. I wish one single thing made sense. To which I say, oh, get over yourself. That's not the point. After Don was killed, I dreamt of him, hugging him and saying, you have to go now, fixing his scarf and pulling his wool overcoat snug, weeping and tugging down his furry Russian cap to protect his ears, kissing his eyes and cheeks again and again. You have to go. Cinching his coat tight by the lapels, for which Don peered at me again with those sad eyes, or through me, or into me, the way my dead do sometimes, looking straight into their homes, which hopefully have flowers in a vase on a big wooden table and a comfortable chair or two, and huge windows through which light pours to wash clean and make a touch less awful what forever otherwise will hurt. Well, I've been speaking today with Ross Gay, a poet and professor at Indiana University, the author of two volumes of poetry, Against Which and Bringing the Shovel Down, your poem really brings Don Belton to life. Hmm. How does reading a poem in public change the life of the poem? Hmm. Reading to me is really, really crucial work. And I love, I love reading my poems. I love going to readings. Um, there's something that's so easy to forget. I think especially here in the academy where the book is the sort of central idea. And that is that bodies write these things, bodies that are changing and decaying and, you know, dying. Um, so that there's a kind of inherent drama to the fact of someone standing before you presenting something that um, they've made. So, yeah, that to me is, is what's most moving about about reading, you know, and, and I think it's essential. And I think poetry readings are, are vital. And, you know, I think a reading is, um, the public performance of the piece is just as important as the book itself. You punctuated the Don Belton poem with asides. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a library artifact. Yeah. Uh, is a poem corporeal? Yeah, very much. I mean, you can even, you know, you can talk about that in terms of the way that a poem is built. The poem, you know, the fact of a line, you know, poems are made in lines and lines are indications of the breath. Boom. That's a kind of human or uh, bodily expression, the breath. Um, they also, you know, when you talk about the metrics or the meter or the rhythms of a, of a poem, it's made up of feet, Again, it's bodily. Poems are bodily expressions in way in different ways than prose is. And prose, you know, someone could probably argue that there's a kind of um, bodily um, expression going on in prose, but it's not like a poem. Poems 
are always indications of the body. And the body is always an indication of something, something that exists in time, in limited time. There's something about time that um, either afflicts or blesses or both poems in ways that it doesn't, doesn't exist in other genres. On the topic of composition, you have said, I write my poems, surely, but they write me as well. How much of the creative process is, um, for want of a better word, channeling? You know, there's a way that I think you could say that it's that, that there there are, um, in the process of revision, there are ways that sort of whatever you call it, higher or different versions of your own intelligence um, or knowing or wondering or wonder um, become accessible. You know, that's the most sort of, to me, the most delightful thing about writing poems is when there you enter a poem in some sort of um, state of being or in some sort of um, condition, say, of knowledge or understanding. And by the time you finish the poem, you have accessed these things that you did not know you had access to. There's any number of ways of describing that or like assigning what that sort of knowledge or thing is. And it could be a channel to one's own self, other parts of one's own self. It could be a channel to other um, currents or feelings or ideas, etc. But yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. Are you creating something when you create a poem that is somehow uh, larger than you are? Or are you and the poem incomparable? Poems that I admire and, and poems that I've written express a kind of understanding that is greater than um, what I know to be or assume to be the understanding of the poet and or me. Um, there are times that I think a poem can have a kind of understanding. You know, I think that's part of the, the fun of, of writing these things is that sometimes, you know, like people, boom, we ring like a bell. And then, you know, often we're kind of rusty and shaggy and... But there are times when we're very clear and part of, you know, the writing of poems, as I said earlier, is this sort of coming into a space where you have questions and coming out of the space where those questions are either more more illuminated or are answered somewhat um, or are at least more clearly um, um, expressible, you know. Do you shoot for timelessness at work, uh, in, in your work, or are you not concerned at all about whether your work will outlive you. I've been thinking about that a lot. And although I think there's just such a deep, I don't, I don't know about other cultures, um, but there's such a deep sense of the timelessness of art in our own culture. We value it so much. And I've come to really suspect that, that um, what it takes to um, make that happen or what, what are the sacrifices that we would make in the in the present um, in order to make this work live on into a kind of imagined future? It feels to me like there might be some kind of, you know, the empire of time, a kind of imperialism of time that um, feels to me dangerous. So the more I hear people say, oh, that's timeless, I think, who cares? I actually want my poems to be now. And I want my poems to feel like uh, my neighbor or my friend or someone I don't know could now read it and get some kind of enjoyment or balm or something out of it. 
I think it's way more important that I'm able to sort of um, be in conversation with people around me at this moment. That's what I want to do. When do you consider a poem finished? There's a way that, again, to come back to that, entering the poem with a question, there's a way that that, that question can either be clearly enough resolved or um, changed in me that it'll be finished. Um, that's the way I, you know, I can make poems that are snappy and pretty good, but that's not particularly satisfying to me. Um, that's just like from practice. You can make a, a decent poem. But what I hope to do is actually write poems um, that, like I said, there's a transformation, like a sort of a deep and honest transformation that I've experienced in the process of writing the poem. And, you know, sometimes that means the poem's going to take two and a half years to write. Um, and sometimes it'll take two weeks where something clicks into focus through the writing of the poem. Um, so that's the way. And, you know, I'm sure that can be a kind of feeling or understanding or like, oh, my God, look, look how much I love that person. I didn't even know um, in the writing of the poem. So that's that's how. Do you feel you're often wrestling a poem to the ground? Or does the first draft often present itself as something close to there? Oh, I mostly write trash at the beginning. I mostly write, yeah, it's mostly garbage. Um, I I often, you know, will have, you know, a con- something that feels worthwhile. I mean, you know, in the writing of my books, I probably write, you know, my buddy, Pat, the poet Patrick Rosal, he'll wave his little 70-page book in the air and he'll say, you know, this is actually a thousand-page book, just so you know. Um, there's a thousand pages that went into this book and they're all gone. And I feel about the same way, you know, that I write so much that's junk and and it takes a long time to, for most of my poems to come into, come into focus. And I revise them a lot. I'm not someone who often writes a poem um, in two or three drafts. I'm someone who, you know, 10 drafts is kind of quick for me. You know, 10 versions of the poem is kind of quick for me. Often, you know, part of my revision process is reading the poem out loud. So I can hear it. I can hear other people hearing it. The poem, the spoon poem that, that you just heard is a little bit different now. And that reading kind of helped me to dial it in. And I wouldn't say it's a wrestling because it's so... Um, more like the opening thing so the channel thing is more the it's like trying you know there's like a beam of light trying to find you know like how to get into that beam of light and so it's kind of more like you know it's work it's dance it's um shoveling but wrestling that's too combative a metaphor for me yeah (laughs) in your first book uh against which There's a poem called Late October in Easton Hmm. uh, about the end of the life of a former NBA player, Eddie Mast. Would you talk a little bit about the creation of that poem? Yeah, that's a poem that comes out of an experience where, you know, the basic experience, the real experience was that I was in a football meeting with my buddy Derek, who's the son of um, Eddie Mast. We were both defensive linemen at Lafayette College, and we were just in a defensive line meeting off the side of this court. Well, Derek was from Easton and his dad lived in town and there was a good basketball run that would go on in the gym at the same time as we were having our meeting that night. And they were playing a good game and he just collapsed. We noticed he collapsed. And uh, 
you know, Derek kind of looked up and noticed. And Derek was never paying attention in the in the football meeting, so he was he was probably watching the game. Anyway, <laughs> and Derek ran over, um, and his dad I think wasn't breathing, and he performed CPR and didn't work, and he passed away. He died. Do you find yourself uh, working to overcome misgivings about disclosing uh, sensitive details about people's lives or, or your own? in the creation of poems? I think I probably did more. Well, I think I should say, I think I'm becoming a little bit less invested in withholding. Um, I mean, I'm, I still withhold plenty, but it seems to me that so much of like the withheld is the most interesting, vulnerable and sort of richest place for uh, inquiry or, you know, meditation. So, uh, you know, the stuff that I wouldn't want to talk about in my life, often the stuff that hurts to talk about, that's what that usually is about, is often the stuff that might make the most productive poems, especially for me, if I'm someone who wants to sort of know more about myself, you know. Is there a gap between Roskay, the author, and Roskay, the first-person subject? In poems? Yeah, I think probably. um, I mean, I'm building that person. I'm constructing that person. But the gap is, I think it's smaller in the the newer poems that I'm writing. I'm less interested in sort of, I'm interested in talking. I'm actually interested in conversations. And I feel real lucky that anyone listens to me talk, period, you know. And so these poems, when people listen to me read poems or when people read my poems, I'm like, that's amazing, you know. And I feel like, it's a gift. I take it very seriously. It's a gift that people are giving me, which I take very seriously. And I, I want to communicate. I want to communicate in ways that feel um, relevant and important to the people who are generous enough to listen or read my work. And that said, um, I think part of my coming to this feeling, to my, my understanding of that, is that you know, the sort of creation of a self in the poems, while it's always happening, I mean, but I'm making a self right now. I'm creating a self right now. So I want the poems to be, you know, closer to me. Like, I actually want to be talking to people. Do you feel at liberty to fictionalize, to composite, to exercise what I guess would be called poetic license? Totally, totally, yeah. If there are, and I don't think that necessarily contradicts what I was just saying. I think there are times that in order for the poem itself to be, you know, because the fact is that like sometimes you have something that's sort of interesting that you want to make a poem out of, um, that you want to sort of explore and see if there's a poem. And it's just not, it's boring. But the poem can become a sort of productive thing if there are, like you say, if some things become a composite. But it might make the thing into a poem, you know. In the spring of 2013, uh, you won a John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship for Creative Arts and Poetry. How does that kind of honor change you? In the real basic way, um, I mean, it's amazing to be sort of in that crew of people who've been um, given that award. That feels really, really um, great. And I feel lucky for that. I also feel like I have this year of time to do work and I'm doing a lot of work, you know, and so in a way it feels like at a really nice point in my career, you know, I'm 39 years old and have two books done and 
um, it feels like a real gift to sort of push some things into motion that, you know, for various reasons, um, time, teaching, et cetera, have not been moving, you know, have been just sort of moving at a different pace. So it's in a way to sort of um, get things open. And I have to, I have to say, I feel like with the sort of space that the, the fellowships sort of provided, the sort of just mental space to wander around and not be thinking hard about, you know, just the sort of uh, often pleasant things that go along with teaching. And, and I feel like ideas have been able to sort of fly into my head that otherwise I would have just, you know, said, get out, get out. You had mentioned that uh, you might use some of the Guggenheim money to uh, fund travel and um, a series of interviews with African-American farmers about their life experiences. Yeah, so I'm already doing that. This this semester, I've been traveling around. I'm writing this book on African-American farming, and it's evolving. So I, I don't know exactly what the shape of the book will be or or exactly. I know it's a African-American farming. It's the big question um, or do you, concern. Do you not know whether it will be fiction or nonfiction? It will be a kind of nonfiction book for sure. Um and it will, in some way, incorporate some of these travels that I've been I've been doing. Definitely, some of the wisdom and um, experiences that these folks have sort of shared with me. So, yeah, I've been in Asheville, North Carolina, and Pembroke, Illinois, and down in um, Southeast Georgia. You know, visiting with with farmers, and I have more plans in the spring to continue to do that to do that and that's the kind of work that the Guggenheim again the time makes possible that you know otherwise I would have been you know patching that thing together very slowly how does life in Bloomington where you've lived for about six years uh, differ for you from life in the East Coast well you know Bloomington's a small town and it's got to me, some of the lovely, lovely attributes of a small, of you know, the great things about a small town. Like I went into the, you know, the co-op and saw like three people who I really care about, you know, and, you know, got to give three hugs, you know, and get three hugs in, in a minute, you know. And that's like, that feels like a lucky thing that um, you don't get everywhere and, and it, you know, it's something to do with the size of this town and the nature of the community, you know. Like I, I mentioned, the Bloomington Community Orchard, that's this community of people, huge community of people um, that shifts around and that I felt so lucky to know and to work with. And, I mean, really, it's not at all an overstatement to say that that feels like some of the most important work that I've ever done in my life to work with that orchard. Would you describe the teaching work that you've done with the orchard? Well, yeah, so the orchard... You know, it was a nonprofit um, organization, and it was started, it was the idea of a woman named Amy Countryman, and a bunch of people have collaborated to, to build this orchard, and I have been one of the education, um, I've worked on the education committee. So we offer classes, we'll offer classes, you know, about 10 classes a year on things like pruning or soil management or cover cropping, putting the orchard down for the for the season, all kinds of different um, topics. And, you know, these these classes are great. And especially we got now this, you know, H. Michael Simmons. Um, Michael Simmons is just like a, a kind of a garden guru in Bloomington. And 
he's running the education team now and um and he's amazing you know and people are coming from far away to take these education classes and it is fun work to teach classes where after they after they're taught you know that people are probably going to go plant some trees that's pretty fun what commonalities do you find between um your orchard teaching work and the cultivation of fruit and teaching and creating poetry i mean teaching is you know it's like um fun teaching the best teaching is like giving people the ability to sort of do um things that previously they couldn't do that's the best. I mean, the best, best teaching is actually when you're in the classroom and you end up being able to do things that you couldn't do before in the class as a teacher. But, you know, when you're teaching good, that's what you're hoping to do. You're, you're sharing with folks things that otherwise maybe, you know, they maybe wouldn't have come to or would have taken a longer time to come to or whatever. And teaching in the orchard, it's the same thing. It's like a very basic way of sharing information that, feels vital and will possibly make lives better, you know, in a very simple way, you know, in a way like, you know, thinking about teaching poetry, this creative work. And, you know, and I, I feel like I'm a, I feel like a young teacher still. Like I don't, I've, you know, I've been teaching for, you know, 15 years or something, but I still feel like I'm figuring this out um, very much. And I feel like teaching creative writing in a way, it's teaching a kind of cultivation of wonder. You know, that's that's the best thing I feel like I can do as a as a teacher, and to figure out ways to get folks to cultivate their wonder, my own wonder too. You know, we all need it. I think it's good for all of us to do that. Cultivating fruit is also cultivating wonder. You know, because it's, I mean, it's full of wonder. The the sort of mechanics, etc., of an orchard or of a garden. Um, again, this is something that is also new to me. I've only been gardening for five or six years and it is astonishing to me. It's so full of wonder. And I think partly being invested in that kind of work or desirous of planting trees and stuff is sort of because you, you find it wonderful. There's something about a flower turning into a fruit and it's, you know, it's like, that's like writing a poem, I think. I think it's a lot like writing a poem. What have you been reading lately? I've been reading a couple things. I've been reading this woman named Rebecca Solnit, and her newest book is called The Far Away Nearby. And it's about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is um, her mother's um, passing and struggling with Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm sort of smiling because a uh, a pile of apricots harvested from her mother's tree um, is figures prominently in in this it's a collection of sort of linked essays i've also been reading this guy named david shields who's a mostly a kind of nonfiction writer who's who's pretty amazing a lot of nonfiction. i've been going back and reading some james baldwin as well who aside from other writers inspires your own work there's a lot of people Truth be told, I just watched a documentary on Dr. J the other day. And, you know, that guy, he matters so much to me. Just in terms of, I don't know, like what it means, what beauty means. You know, I was a little boy when I would be watching those games. And my dad would take me and my brother to those games periodically. So I got to see Dr. J play. And, like, no kidding, that has a sort of, that had a profound impact on the way that I think, I imagine, aesthetics, a number of other things, too, I'm sure. But 
aesthetics, beauty, um, elegance, you know, really studying that guy. Richard Pryor is really important to my to my sense of poetics in terms of sort of I mean, there are a number of things that that I watch and sort of study with him. But most importantly, a kind of exploration of vulnerability in you know, a certain kind of masculinity, you know, a certain kind of vulnerable masculinity or something like that. He's amazing to me. Really, you know, really amazing, complicated performer. Confessional. Confessional, deeply confessional, yeah. Um, and though, like, this kind of artist who could construct a piece that was way, way more sophisticated than, you know, I think any comedy that I've, than most performance that I've, that I've witnessed. Yeah, those are a couple of people. A couple of questions about your um, forthcoming third book. Mm-hmm. You've got a third manuscript finished. Mm-hmm. What is the process of uh, culling all your recent work and distilling that into a volume like? Well, you know, it's been different for each book. Um, for the first book, it was basically the best poems I had written until the time I was, whatever, 30. And, and the second book, it was very much built. I knew early on that I was going to have a certain kind of architecture for the book. And I wanted the book to go from one place to another. But I didn't have a whole lot of idea about how that was going to happen. So, But I did have in mind the sort of arc of the book. Um, with this book, in a way, it's more like with the first book. I've been writing poems steadily since you know 2011 or 10 from the time that I you know the second book was submitted and have I've gathered a kind of um, collection of poems that I think share some kind of a subject matter actually so I was going to say that they're basically the poems that I've written from X amount of time you know for the last five years say but actually that's not the case actually there's a kind of very strong um I don't know theme is the right word, but um, let's say theme of transformation informed by things like trees and flowers. You know, there's a very strong, and in a way there might be a kind of, I haven't thought of this yet, but there might be a kind of a, a linking metaphor, the way that transformations occur in, in people and relationships and lives that act like the transformations of that we see as as gardeners and stuff like that. Do you have a title for the new book? Yeah. It's called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. Yeah. How did you settle on that title? I was at a writing conference this summer, and I was in a field by myself swinging kettlebells. (laughs) And I was thinking how delighted I was at, my student, who was also up there, recent graduate of the MFA program here, who who was writing these delight. He's a delight. He's an amazing poet. He was writing these delightful, grateful poems, and I thought, you know, my poems are kind of uh, full of gratitude, also. And I thought, you know, it makes me want to sort of announce that is what a book of poem can do. A book of poem can catalog gratitude. Can we hear a handful of poems from your two published volumes? Totally. I'd like to uh, hear The Cleave from Against Which. The Cleave. The ache you speak of feeling 
when you leave your sleeping child, let it swell into a wail ageless as the wind spit from wave breaks. Feel it in the baby's milky breath and gaze that gazes past even you, that weave of grief and rapture, the ceaseless cleave, the please don't leave. It seems that some of the power of uh, this poem comes from the ambiguity of the word cleave, mm-hmm. which is practically an antonym of itself. Yeah, yeah. It it means to split apart and to hold on to, right? Mm-hmm. How about, since we discussed it earlier, late October in Easton? Yeah. Late October in Easton. It's for Derek Mast. We watched the men shoot hoops. Two ex-pros in them, a Nick and a Buck, agile dinosaurs sauntering through the gleam off the court's back. We watched the ex-Nick turn for a rebound, crumple to the ground, six feet ten inches of man sprawled through the paint, an arm flung, palm up, across the baseline. We watched his son sprint to his side, press the carotid, tuck his ear close to his dad's parted, still lips, watch those thick hands clasped into one, attack the heart like John Henry's massive sledge, pushing at his dad's fat heart, the thing moaning its last violent lament in that castle, that huge rib cage, all the bone pillars pointing to heaven. And didn't the son try like mad to make the heart sing? Didn't he massage the smooth tissue of his father's heart like a miner sifting through sand for gold? And didn't the father's last exhalation crawl from his throat, the eyes locked vacant on the court's lights, that raspy sigh, the sound of breeze-blown leaves, almost like a hand on the son's brow, almost the father saying, It's okay. It's done. The next day, A mile away, the Delaware still rolled drowsy through the hills, and it was football season. Late October, the miles of corn surrounding our field had come down, letting the fall wind press itself against my face. I can smell it, the wind getting its bite from the river, and I remember standing on the free bridge after practice at five o'clock when the sun slipped back into the horizon's black sleeve. I remember the orange and gold glow of the forest hanging on the river's rippled shoulders and the way that river, silent and alone, was always going home. How to fall in love with your father. How to fall in love with your father. Put your hands beneath his armpits. Bend your knees. Wait for the clasp of his thinning arms. The best lock, cheek to cheek. Move slow. Do not, right now, recall the shapes he traced yesterday on your back, moments before being wheeled to surgery. Do not pretend the anxious calligraphy of touch was signed beyond some unspeakable animal stammer. Do not go back further into the landscape of silence you both tended with body and breath until it nearly obscured all but the genetic gravity between you. And do not imagine wind now blowing that landscape into a river which spills into a sea, because it doesn't. That's not this love poem. In this love poem, the son trains himself on the task at hand, which is simple. 
which is finally the only task he has ever had, which is lifting the father to his feet. You have uh, written more recently about your thoughts of, about what becoming a father might be like. Mm. How do you think becoming a father would alter your view of your own father? Mm. Interesting. I feel like um, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for my dad. And I have to think having kids would make me have more compassion still. <laughs> I, uh, You know, my partner has kids. She has kids. And, and they are, um, you know, they're amazing kids. And it's just like at every second, I think it must feel just terrifying. You want to do so good. I mean, she wants to do so good by these kids. And it's, you don't know, you know, you don't know. And so I think, yeah, knowing, knowing that and sort of if that was how I would be feeling. And I think given almost all the parents I know always feel like, oh, <laughs> um, I feel like I'd have even more compassion for my old man. From Bringing the Shovel Down, can we hear Poem to My Child, If Ever You Shall Be? Sure. Poem to My Child, If Ever You Shall Be. The way the universe sat waiting to become, quietly, in the nether of space and time, you too remain some cellular snuggle dangling between my legs, curled in the warm swim of my mostly quietest self. If you come to be, and who knows... I wonder, little bubble of unbudded capillaries, little one ever a swirl in my vascular galaxies, what would you think of this world that turns itself steadily into an oblivion that hurts, and hurts bad? Would you curse me, my careless caressing you into this world, or would you rise up and, mustering all your strength into that tiny throat that one day, no doubt, would grow big and strong, scream and scream and scream until you break the back of one injustice, or at least get to your knees to kiss back to life some roadkill? I have so many questions for you. For you are closer to me than anyone has ever been, tumbling as you are this second through my heart's every chamber, your teeny mouth singing along with the half-broke workhorse's steady boom and gas. And since we're talking today, I should tell you, though I know you sneak a peek sometimes through your father's eyes, it's a glorious day. And there are millions of leaves collecting against the curbs. And they're the most delicate shade of gold we've ever seen and must favor the transparent wings of the angels you're swimming with, little angel. And as to your mother, well, I don't know. But my guess is that lilac bursts from her throat and she is both honeybee and wasp and some kind of moan to boot. And probably she dances in the morning. But who knows? You'll swim beneath that bridge if it comes. For now, let me tell you about the bush called honeysuckle that the sad call a weed and how you could push your little sun-licked face into the throngs and breathe and breathe. Sweetness would be your name and you would wonder why four of your teeth are so sharp and the tiny mountain range of your knuckles so hard and you would throw back your head and open your mouth at the cows lowing their human songs in the fields and the pigs swimming in dung and clover and everything on this earth, little dreamer, little dreamer of the new world, holy. 
every raindrop and sand grain and blade of grass worthy of love and love and love, tiny shaman, tiny blood thrust, tiny trillion cells trilling and trilling, little dreamer, little hard hat, little heartbeat, little best of me. Thank you. From bringing the shovel down, can we hear Axe Blade? Sure. Axe Blade. There she is again, studying her face in the mirror of an axe blade, which reflects, as well, the hand-shaped welt wrapping her jaw. While the baby on her lap feeds, she dreams about that man asleep on the couch. How the steel wedge plunged into that skull might well loose the lover it once housed, the one who could run the back of his hand along her neck such that every bone in her body would exhale, who would sit on the tub's edge singing to her as he eased the sponge along her tired back. The axe has her dreaming how bloodshed begets beauty. And when she hears the throaty rattle from the other room, she sits the infant in his crib, grips the axe, and goes to find her man. I'm reminded of something Laurie Anderson said in uh, an essay just after her longtime partner Lou Reed Mm. died. She said, I believe the purpose of death is the release of love. Again, we have tenderness commingled with extreme violence in this poem. What, What made you... Think of this. What summoned this in you? Yeah, you know, it's just plainly my grandmother, my nana, my father's mother, you know, had abusive partners, and one of whom was my grandfather, who I came to know as this gentle and dear old man, you know. And and she talks about him with such affection, you know, and can very quickly talk about how violent he could be and in the next sentence talk about how dear and uh, tender he could be. In a way, that's the sort of poem that I was writing about, you know, about these two people who I love very much and who struggled in that way. Well, I've been speaking today with poet and professor Ross Gay. Thank you very much for being with us. It's my pleasure. This is John Bailey for Profiles. Thanks for tuning in. The program you just heard was recorded in December of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.